Over the Lent season, our topic and theme that I've asked you, and as we, the small, small, uh, small group material, the study and so forth, is about the extravagance of God. And it, in many ways, uh, may seem to be counter to the idea of Lent. But we've asked over these weeks that you would pay attention to that theme, that topic of God's extravagance, because of the Lenten season. That in contrast to that, of a season of humility, a season of repentance, of reflection, of contemplation, of a bit of withdrawal, that out there on the other side of that is the compelling vision and idea about God's extravagance. Expressed in a number of ways, last week, Pastor Chris talked about God's love and God's presence being greater than we could ever imagine. The week before, about the magnificence and the extravagance of the very creation. Today, I'd like to ask you to think and pray with me about another feature of God's extravagance, God's extravagance revealed and disclosed to us in dreams and in visions. Several ways in which that has happened biblically I'd like to begin with this, this morning. Instances that you recall. Remember the manna and the quail in the wilderness? When the people of Israel, as they made the Sinai journey, believed that they would starve, it was the manna and the quail that sustained them. And remember what happened? There was so much manna that they were warned, don't put any of it away for safekeeping because it'll spoil. And there were so many quail that they had more than enough. Or the story of the feeding of the 5,000. When the concern raised by the disciples is, what about these people? It's getting to be the dinner hour. There's nothing to eat. And it was the loaves and fishes multiplied so much that there were a dozen baskets of food left over God's extravagant grace and goodness. Remember the story of the prodigal son and his having left his family to go find for himself. And upon his return, that extravagant display of grace, it was not just the father who said, come back, here's your bed, but who ran out to the end of the driveway with ring, robe, and sandals and announced the extravagant feast, sent orders to, fill the, to kill the fatted calf, the story of extravagant, extravagant grace. I'm thinking of a story from, you'll hear more about this later also. I'm thinking of that story from the 37th chapter of Genesis, which is the story of Joseph, the youngest son of old Jacob. We know him as Joseph eventually to become the assistant to the Pharaoh of Egypt but we also know him as Joseph the dreamer in the 37th chapter of Genesis. And perhaps you recall the story, it's Joseph who is the youngest son among the 12 brothers and who is clearly the favored son and Jacob makes no secret about that. 
And one day, Joseph, who is probably not terribly well-liked for all of those reasons, announces to his brothers that in a dream, he saw 12 sheaves of grain having been harvested in the field that were bound. And 11 of the sheaves bow down to one of the sheaves, and Joseph, for reasons I don't understand, chose to announce that to his brothers. But it gets worse. He has another dream. And in this dream, there are the sun, the moon, and the stars. There are 12 stars. And you know it's coming. He said, oh, by the way, 11 of the stars were bowing down to the one star, and I'm the one star. Now, if that made his brothers angry, you probably could understand why if you've ever had any feelings uh, toward a sibling. But here, you know, when it makes the father upset, you know things are really going south. And even old Jacob, who has his own set of issues with his own brother, Esau, who wants to kill him. This is what old Jacob said, so it did have impact. Jacob said, well, the book of Genesis. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. It's the power of dreams, the power of visions, the power, in a sense, of our imagination to shape what's out there and who we are and how we make our choices. And if you remember the rest of the Joseph story, it actually came to be true because eventually Jacob and the brothers arrive at the Pharaoh's house or at the headquarters and they have to appeal to Joseph, literally to bow down before him, and ask, can you give us some food, for there is a famine back here in the land of Canaan. And I'm sure that it all came back to their memories. Since the mid-60s, actually late mid-50s, there have been at least 400 songs written that use the theme or topic of dreams as the theme of those songs. 400. You can probably begin to think already now of songs that, you're, that you know of or words that you've heard about dreams. My all-time favorite, and by the way, this is number 141 of the top 500 songs of all time, the Everly Brothers. All I have to do is dream. Some of you remember it. Number 141 of all, all time, out of 500 of the top selling songs of, uh, of, uh, in the recording industry. So that capacity of dreams and of visions is overwhelmingly compelling for us who need some kind of image, some kind of picture, some kind of reality in our minds. And I'm reminded of that because 
if God is as extravagant as we believe and as we declare that God is extravagant, then isn't it possible that God uses dreams and visions within and even outside of our imagination to reveal and to disclose who he is and how we fit into that long and involved picture? And so dreams do have that capacity. And Native Americans knew this, maybe long before us Westerners, and they devised this kind of a device. Maybe some of you recognize it. It's a dream catcher. And in Native American culture, dream catchers were built and designed, and they took all kinds of form. And you can look, you can Google it and find different pictures of dream catchers. But dream catchers were devices, these, these pieces of art that were sometimes much more elaborate than that. And they were intended to be hung above one's bed to catch the dreams, to capture the bad dreams that one could be subject to, but to let the good dreams fall through the big opening in the middle that much power of dreams. And when I read about that, and, and I'd heard of dream catchers, I'd seen them on display in, in uh, stores, uh, uh, museum shops in the past. I thought, that's it. That's what we need as God's people. We need dream catchers. Something that captures the dreams, the visions Remember those great words from the prophet Joel, quoted actually in the Pentecost story in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Important enough to have been mentioned on the day of Pentecost about what was happening to that group of people about ready to embark on the missionary enterprise of the church. Or perhaps you remember the story of a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion in the Roman army. And he had a uh, what I think of as a, a, a resort house, a vacation house, out near Caesarea on the... Uh, Mediterranean coast. He had a dream one evening, and the dream was this. Cornelius sent word to Peter, who is over some distance away, send your soldiers to, to get him and bring him back here because there's something important that he has to tell you. So the soldiers go and bring Peter back willingly. Peter goes up on the roof of the house where Cornelius lives, and he has a, a vision and a dream, and he sees a large sheet that's being dropped down out of heaven. And in this sheet, this big, uh, whatever, whatever it is, is a, are all kinds of animals thought to be both clean and unclean according to Jewish law. And Peter wonders what this is about, and then he figures it out, and he goes downstairs to tell Cornelius about the dream that he'd had, the vision that he'd seen. And then Peter 
had a dream catcher. He knew what it meant. And he said this. This means that from here on out, there is, not, there is nothing that's clean and unclean in the kingdom of God, for there's no differentiation among these diverse peoples who want to come to God. We're all the same. And here is Cornelius, a Roman, non-Jewish believer, because at this point, up to that point, the whole missionary enterprise of the church was to the Jewish population. And because of Peter's dream, Peter's vision, it's expanded. And then we get to hear the story a little bit later on of St. Paul, known as Saul, on the Damascus Road, traveling to persecute believers up in Damascus. And on his way, he doesn't have a vision. He doesn't see anything because he's struck blind. But he does hear a voice. And the voice asks him this question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He then goes into Damascus, resides there at the home of a man named Judas. But another man has another vision, and his name is Ananias. And Ananias has a vision, and he's told in this vision, go to where Paul is at the home of Judas, lay your hands on him, and tell him what's happened. And Paul's vision is restored. And the second generation of the missionary enterprise to the non-Jewish world is implemented by St. Paul. And you can read about all of that in the book of Acts. If dreams and visions get captured, there seems to me in the Bible to be very little limitation, if any, on what in fact is possible for the followers of God to accomplish. If I mention the name T.E. Lawrence, you may not know who that is, but if I mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, you would probably know. As you probably are aware, he was a very, very famous and well-known political strat and military strategist in the British Empire. And he knew something about the power of dreams. This is what he said. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act on their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. They may act on their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. When I read this quotation this week, I was reminded of where Lawrence of Arabia, of the work he'd done, and I was reminded of places that we've heard in the news. Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, Iran. And don't you imagine that there are people there who have dreams. And as Lawrence of Arabia said, they are dangerous men because they're not settling for the way things have been. The power of dreams and of visions
can literally shape who we are, how we implement those, and how we can change the world. I've been privileged to be with you for almost six months now. And it was fun, it has been fun, and I expect it will still be fun. But I also must tell you that over these months, I started to dream about Christ Church. It started to happen. That always unsettles me. And the dreams that I've had, I, I never, I'm never, I usually wake up before they get finished. But it's Christ Church and the vision, the, part of my dream is driving up and parking my car and I start to walk in the door and that's when I wake up. I don't know what happens inside. But I also did some research about dreams and recognized that almost all of us dream. The capacity to remember a dream is like 10% of our dreams we could ever remember. Very small percentage. So we all do it. We just can't remember them. But I want to say just a little bit about some of the dreams when I started thinking about that I have for Christ Church. Whether I get to be a part of it or not, I don't know. First is this one. Bible study. I have this dream and this vision that we as a group of people who are the followers of Jesus could be studying the Bible in ways that we haven't even imagined. And that means just a lot of us doing that. We have small groups, but we could be studying the Bible in ways that we haven't even imagined. So that if there's 150, 160 people in church, how about just half of that population being deeply engaged in Bible study that would change and shape the nature Remember how dangerous that could be of who we are and what we do together. Now, I would never say the goal in my dream is that 100% of the people at Christ Church are involved in Bible study because that's the Holy Spirit's job to figure out how many people it would be. But I know this would work, is that if we said we're going to invite 100 people into Bible study, that would be a start. Second part of my dream for Christ Church is this. And I've mentioned this before. An outpouring of generosity, of giving, that equals what St. Paul wrote about when he wrote to the Corinthian church about the admir admirable giving levels of some poor people in a church in Macedonia. And this is what he wrote. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. The third part of the dream that I have for Christ Church is this. And it doesn't have anything to do with the traditional. It's about some big problems we're going to have out in the future. And I'm dreaming that we're going to have these problems. And the nature of my dream with these problems is this. That if you came to church today if you came to church at 1015, 
you would not be able to find a parking place. And if you walked in here at 20 after, you might have to bring your chair with you. Because in that dream that I have, we ran, we've run out of parking and we don't have enough room for people to sit. And the other part of that is we have to add a third worship service to accommodate everyone. And if we believe what T.E. Lawrence had said, and if we believe what the Bible tells us about young men having visions and old men dreaming dreams, I simply do not know why that is not possible. One part of that is what we began talking about in January about consecration. Remember Joshua when he was getting ready to launch an enterprise, an effort, a military effort? Whenever he would do that, God would speak to him or he would go to the people and say, first of all, you must consecrate yourselves and then launch the enterprise. He said it over and over, consecrate first yourselves. I've invited one of the members of our consecration Sunday team, you're hearing that word a lot, to say a little bit about what that might mean as part of a dream and a vision for what our future is going to look like. And I'm a member of the team that is preparing for Consecration Sunday. And you've probably heard and read a few things about Consecration Sunday. It's going to be on uh, April 17th on Palm Sunday. We're going to spend some time together that day celebrating the gifts that God's given us. A, leader's gonna, uh, a guest leader is going to take us through that walk and, and through the walk of what our response might be in, get, in terms of our times in our treasure, what our response to God's uh, extravagant love um, mean to us and to this place, to this congregation. Um, and, and after the service, there, was, there will be one service that day, and after that service, we'll all share a meal uh, together um, to, to get ready to hear what, what our dreams are that we, that we share together for this place. Um, today, Pastor Barry's um, talking about dreams and dreamers in the Bible. And, and he spoke of one of my favorite stories of dreamers in the Bible, and that's uh, Joseph in Genesis. And, and what, I like, what I like to examine about Joseph and his dreams is the response that people had to those dreams. Um, I look at his brothers. You know, what was their response? Of course, they were, they were jealous of his being this special brother, but they were angry, and they were short-sighted, and they sold him into slavery for 20 shekels. And Because um, they didn't want to believe that Joseph spoke with authority when he said that they would bow down to him one day. And yet what happened? Well, you, you know what happened. A, a marvelous story of God's redemption and grace played out over a number of years um, and, and in many surprising ways. You know, Joseph was not sold for 20 shekels. Joseph was sold to be God's instrument for the salvation of Israel because what happened in the end? Um, Israel was starving and Joseph fed them. And even those jealous and short-sighted brothers. 
you know, because of Joseph and the dreams that God gave him, God's extravagant plan for, for his people was fulfilled that day. And it was a plan that was hard to, hard to picture at the beginning. It was a plan that required many years of struggle, many years for Joseph in jail, um, but years of great wealth and also terrible famine that resulted in the end of that, in, in, the, in the ultimate ending of that story. But Joseph, he, and he, Joseph had hard times and he was faithful and God rewarded that faithfulness. It's just an example of, of what God can do in good times and bad. We, we can't underestimate that. Another one of the dreamers in the Old Testament was Joseph's father, Jacob. And here Jacob was running from his life. The only thing he had was a rock to sleep on. His brother was trying to kill him and he dreamed a dream of a ladder to heaven. And he heard God's promises to him that through him, God's promise would be fulfilled in, in, on the earth and that J Jacob's family would be blessed and become Israel. And so Jacob, who had nothing at the time, woke up, built an altar and said, said to God, you know, of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. You know, I have to admit, I'm a man, I have doubts. Of all these stories of faithfulness and God's generosity, sometimes I have a hard time believing um, how God will respond to my faithfulness. You know, what am I that God would bless me? But, you know, and, and I've even had the privilege, a lifelong privilege of witnessing generosity and the blessings that God has poured out on, on, on that all my life. And if you don't know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a preacher's kid. I come from a very large family. Um, and so there was never much to go around. Uh, yet we were always happy. My parents were and are very generous, both with the church, with their family, and, and with people, people who needed help. I remember Sunday meals. They were always prepared like there was plenty. And there were more than just the family of nine around the table. There were other guests. They weren't just friends. They were the down and the out. Um, later on in my dad's ministry, uh, he kind of developed a reputation as being a soft touch. Um, and I remember there became a steady stream of people coming to our door asking for help. People that my dad didn't even know sometimes. Um, and he always just believed their story. He wanted to believe their story. And I know he knows he was sometimes taken advantage of. And sometimes he asked people to do work for the money that he gave them out of his own pocket. But dad wasn't concerned with being taken advantage of. He was more concerned with who these people were. They were God's children. So I've seen these blessings. And still some, sometimes I doubt that my giving will be blessed. But I, despite my own doubts, we give. Eileen and I have always set aside uh, money for the work of God. Um, and, and the call always doesn't, doesn't always come at a good time. You know, when, when Christchurch was purchasing this building, we needed 
the congregation needed money for a down payment for the loan. And, and Christ Church came to all of us. And at that time, Eileen and I were uh, saving for... Our, our kids were entering college, and the cost of that was looming, and we were, we were planning on paying for that. And, and uh, so the money that we gave to Christ Church at that time seemed like a lot of money for me at that time. But, you know, we went out, we stepped out in faith, and after, even after all the, the, my doubts, having witnessed all the generosity that I've seen being rewarded in my life, we gave with joy and anticipation of what was going to happen here at Christ Church. Um, and the money that we gave, we never even missed it. We've been able to dream big here at Christ Church. Um, uh, and I know that, like Joseph, there are probably many other dreams that God has for us that may take years to play out. But, you know, I, when I think of my doubts... Who am I? I'm a man. But God, he is God. And he can do great things. So we, I'd like you to think uh, together about that in the coming weeks as we get together and talk about Consecration Sunday and what that means for the future of Christ, what it means for the future of us together as a congregation in, in this place. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>